0: Welcome to episode 24 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Von Latke, and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Steve Saidman, for an episode on COVID and the WHO. The feature interview is with Dr. Kelly Lee, Professor and Canada Research Chair in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. At the end of the show, Steve talks entertainment if you're running out of things to read or watch. Thank you for joining us.
1: Stephanie, how are you doing in this week nine of the pandemic?
0: I'm doing well. The morale is high. One thing that was really weird in my inbox in the last little while is an invitation to go to Europe. So a traveling invitation for a conference in Brussels. And I thought, hmm, that's unusual. It's something that we used to get routinely Mm-hmm. Uh, but now there's just been a complete stop in those types of invitations to, to conferences because of uh, just the restrictions on, on travel, obviously. So uh, it just caught me off mm-hmm. guard and it got me thinking, you know, will I even be allowed to go? Will traveling resume as normal in the fall? Probably not.
1: Yes. You know, this is obviously traveling season for most academics that so we like to do our, a lot of our field work in May, June, July when classes are out. I had a, a, a fairly slow travel schedule this spring. I guess the question is, is what are we going to face when we get to the airports in October or December or whenever we're, we're traveling again?
0: Mm, I think we'll have lots to complain about. And
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: we both like to complain about air travel you know, whether it's the delays or the annoyances of of changed uh, correspondences, but taking the plane was not that great before and I think we can expect it to suck even more now. I read an essay, in the Atlantic, mm-hmm. that is uh, not cause for optimism. The author was predicting that everything will be slower. We might have to submit a temperature check.
1: But I also think that is really security theater. You know, we've been talking about the shoes and all that stuff for years mm-hmm. now. It's, it's more theater than real security because the threat's really low. Well, given the fact that we know that the disease can be spread when you're not sharing any, showing any symptoms, it doesn't matter whether you get, if you don't have a fever. So why test for people who have fevers? It's going to get a small pound of people who are potentially disease carriers, but it's going to miss all the asymptomatic people who are also carriers. So I think that's a false security kind of device that they may put in place, but it's not really going to do a whole lot. Apparently one of the f- airlines flying to Hong Kong is no longer providing food, and so... What's that going to mean for, you know, those 12, 15 hour flights to have more food on planes brought from outside, which I don't think is going to be a positive move for lowering risk of of spread of disease.
0: Yeah, you're going to have to pack some jerky or something in your your carry-on luggage to make it through a flight. They're probably just going to give us a bottle of water so that they make sure that in-flight service is at a minimum and all flight attendants will be wearing masks and uh, only coming when needed, I suppose.
1: But the thing is, how do you eat while you're wearing a mask? And so I would imagine that everybody's going to be, either they serve smoothies or they're going to provide a service where you take the food that you bought at the airport, and you convert it into a smoothie because you're going to have to drink it by straw. Otherwise, you're taking off your, your mask, to eat your sandwich, or whatever it is you buy. And huh. so I think we've created a lot of anxiety for our listeners about this travel stuff.
0: <laughs> too soon, too soon.
1: Too soon. Well, it's we'll be reporting it to our audience about how this travel works. because we'll probably be some of the first guinea pigs come this fall. We discussed offline planning for conferences. Stephanie just got this grant from the... Department of National Defense for the new RSA, NSA network. I know you're very busy with all of the planning for it. I I think it's a real challenge to start up a new network. The CDSN had its conference a couple weeks ago on April 27th, and so we're still pushing out the findings. Check out our website, check out my blog where I spent the past week discussing each of the five different sets of findings. We will be doing more work on this in the the days to come. I guess for you, what's the biggest challenge in setting up a network from scratch when you can't even hang out with your uh, co-director?
0: Well, we talk on a regular basis, but the the challenge for academics who are really excited about launching the vision is the administrative work that comes at the front end of of making sure everything is properly set set up. And when you're writing an application, you're dreaming big and you're thinking of all of the things that you want to do and all the questions that you're excited about. Of course, that's not how it starts. It starts with setting up that strong foundation, which is mostly administrative work. So I think we're, we're looking forward to getting over that hump to be able to get to the more creative intellectual piece. But I'm really happy about, about the team that we have. Just MS is, is a fantastic partner as well when it comes to those planning efforts uh, at the earlier stages and like you we're wondering about how we're going to host these events in a post covid world or in a world where the new normal looks very different when it comes to these larger gatherings like the conferences and and workshops we're used to hosting so when we read stories about the the baseball season starting up but with no one in the stadium maybe that's what the future of our events going to look like it's going to be inviting a few select participants making sure that we get really great audiovisual material out of those gatherings and then disseminating online for a wider audience so those are the scenarios that we're exploring at this time and i think we just need to to remain flexible as we plan ahead because we really don't know What's going to be the new normal a year from Mm -hmm. now, and and we just have to uh, to adapt as we go along and stay open to uh, to changing plans on short notice.
1: Yeah, Carlton made the news this morning, releasing uh, its report on what it's going to be doing. It's a really good document. It's a seven or eight page document where they explain the principles of how to what they're dealing with, focusing first on the health of the students and then moving from there. And they went through systematically and looked at all the options very transparently and ruled out all the options essentially by being online in the fall. That document was very admirable. That process was very admirable for being transparent. Uh, McGill obviously announced last week, at the end of the week, that they're going online for the fall. Mm -hmm. So I think for all of us, we just have to, you know, directly look at the the risks and the uncertainties and, and figure out the path that provides the most amount of certainty and the most amount of concern for the health of everybody and and soldier forward rather than just deferring and deferring we just have to deal with the reality that we're facing right now and if something great happens like an, a vaccine happens earlier or there's a great treatment to, that reduces the risks of these things then maybe we can change but we can't start our assumptions based on those hopes we have to start our assumptions based on on that things are going to be difficult for it, though near future
0: yeah it's it's very tempting to just keep on postponing and it's it is wishful thinking you just want it to come back to normal but it won't be the case and i think all we need to do is listen back to our episodes from not even over a month ago when we were still talking about going to hawaii for isa The mindset has changed. We'll see. But I, I think you're right. There's no sense in just kicking the can further down the road anymore. It's time to really plan for not being able to meet in person and just to to get the work done.
1: To so just change topics a little bit, I think the pandemic has made it harder to react to things like the helicopter crash. The last time we recorded a podcast, it happened, we recorded before the helicopter crash and before the news got out about it. I guess you're in a particularly strange position now that you have two hats. You're a defense analyst and you're also essentially, uh, you're the honorary lieutenant colonel for a regiment in the Canadian Forces that happened to have the involvement of at least one of the victims of, of that crash. So tell me, Stephanie, how are you dealing with this?
0: well like the other members of uh, the regimental family of the Princess of Wales own regiment I've been mourning the loss of, of Abigail Abigail is, is uh, the one you were mentioning she was a piper and Highland dancer who volunteered her time uh, with the regiment while she was at RMC and as I was following the story obviously at touches directly upon the research that you and I do on on NATO. And so the media requests started to come in and it just, it just didn't feel right to to mm-hmm. go and engage in the media. It's one of those instances where you wear this one hat as a non left-hand colonel with a regiment and you get a, Really close to that regimental family, uh, you go to all of the events, you you interact on a on a weekly basis, and then when those requests come in, you you feel like it's uh, really inappropriate to just uh, comment clinically on the on the events uh, as as they uh, as they happened. Obviously, there's still a lot that's unknown, and in the investigation into what happens is ongoing. But I felt like in this particular instance, I wanted to take a bit of a pause mm-hmm. and. My priority in this instance was uh, listening to the stories that members of the regimental family had to share and mourn the loss of Abigail, with, and then put the research aside for just a moment.
1: It, these things are very tricky in normal times. And I've got to say that I, I also didn't comment much because I don't really know much about naval helicopter operations. And this points out to one of the weaknesses, I think, of of the CDSN is that we don't really have a strong naval expertise. We have some members who have some expertise. So I reached out to them. And, and when, when, people, when the media re- asked me to talk about it, I punted and directed them towards these other people. I do think that there's a bit of impatience on the media to get the full story immediately. And I think the uh, the government has been asked a lot of questions that they've been hesitant to ask, because they'd rather say, I don't know until they know more, rather than say something definitive. And so, for instance, accident happened in sight of, of the ship. And so there are witnesses and John Vance has been asked about witnesses and he keeps on saying, well, if there are any, rather than saying that there are witnesses, because I don't think he wants to say anything declarative until he, he knows more. And so I, I don't really mind the government at this point being slow about trying to figure this stuff out. We don't, there's no urgency to know you know, at this very moment exactly what happened. We want to know ultimately. Well, let's turn to something a, a little less sad and a little, perhaps a little more comedic. It turns out that people didn't learn from the Bay of Pigs invasion of 61 in because we now have a group of Americans who tried to support a coup in Venezuela and it seems as if they were live tweeting the event.
0: That, that is a big jump to be taking. Reading about the story, I'm really hoping it's going to be a movie. I mean, there's still a lot of details that are that are surfacing, but just the 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 very flamboyance personality of Jordan Goudreau will make for a really great uh, movie scenario one day. I can already think of some of the, the good casting choices that that might be made. <laughs> but yeah, the, the social media stuff was strange. Um, the, the denials also from, from the Trump administration, I, mm-hmm. I think it's unlikely that they were completely unaware that mm-hmm. something was going on. And if they didn't know anything at all about this, this is also mm-hmm. a bit problematic, maybe. I,
1: I do want to speak from a Civ Mill perspective for a second, mm-hmm. which is one way to make sense of the tweeting, even though it was strange bad and poorly executed, is that one of the basic dynamics of a coup, and uh, Nanahal Singh, who's a professor at the Naval War College in the United States, right, writes really well about this, is that in a coup attempt, the idea is that the military doesn't want to fight other elements of the military. And so the, one of the key dynamics is to try to convince everybody that you've already won so that there's no point in resisting. So Because most people are sitting on a fence and will jump to whoever's side wit is appearing to win. So that way nobody has to shoot and nobody has to get shot. And so in a normal coup, of course, the first thing you do is seize the radio stations, the TV stations, and put out messages to try to present an air of inevitability that this, this thing is happening. So that way, everybody just goes along with it and complies. And so that's a basic notion or basic dynamic in any coup attempt. But the problem is that you have to actually have a presence and have some sort of sense of that you're you're in control and that things are inevitable, that you're going to win. Live tweeting as you're, you know, coming ashore is far, far, far away from presenting yourself as inevitable. It, it more sounds like identifying yourself as being a target for the you're giving away your location for the adversary so it was really poorly executed so i i think that that might have been what they had in mind with the tweets was trying to present themselves as as being the inevitable victors to try Mm -hmm. to get everybody going online but there has to be some element of credibility to the messaging for it to play out. And one of the things that Nanahal Singh finds out in, in his study is he shows that when coups are attempted by senior officers, generals, they they're more likely to work and less likely to be violent. And when they're launched by junior officers, they're far more likely to be violent and less likely to work. And so when you have this Canadian-born, haha, 43-year-old Guy, he falls into sort of the latter category of of this is not something being led by folks who can claim they're speaking on behalf of large sectors of the military. So it was doomed to fail from the outset. So when people refer to it as a dumb bay of pigs, I think they're they're pretty much on target.
0: Yeah, it's like the special forces guy became an influencer (laughs) and then live tweeted this. So it definitely felt more like a a reality show script than an attempt to leverage social media to put out a credible message.
1: You know, there was, there's always that slogan or, or, or saying is, what would have if you had a war and nobody showed up? Well, this is what happens if you have a coup and nobody shows up. Hizzles very quickly.
0: Yeah, only two of your friends.
1: <laughs> only two of your friends show up. Uh, <laughs> plus the other side. I guess one thing I, I want to mention, or listeners, Richard Moss asked us, what are our thoughts on rising xenophobia in foreign policy? And in a time of crisis like this, we're looking to blame others. And this has been an on-off messaging with the United States. Yesterday, Donald Trump, when he was asked about the death toll in the United States, he said, ask China. And so it's part of, you know, blame casting towards China. So we're seeing a lot of this blaming China for this. And, and th- th- this leads to a difficult challenge because China mishandled the, the early stages of the epidemic. But China's mishandling of that doesn't excuse the mishandling by the United States, slow responses of most democracies. And we can't blame China for everything. And, it's, and one of the things that we do see is there's more violence and more fear about Asian Americans and Asian Canadians as this thing played out, even though the reality is, that we've discovered is that actually Canada got more of its early cases of this from travelers from Europe than from from China. But we don't see the same kind of anti-European sentiment as we see anti-Asian, and that's something we need to be alert to.
0: No, I think there's there's certain things we can blame China for. You know, keeping the virus secret and letting infected people travel, uh, misreporting to the WHO, spreading misinformation. But I think, yes, it has gotten out of hand. And we've talked about Trump's attempt to scapegoat over and over, whether it's China or the WHO, and it's just not a constructive attitude. At the UN Security Council as well, you know, with the draft resolution that's meant to call for a global ceasefire, we see that the United States is the adoption of this resolution because it's haggling over the text because it doesn't want the WHO mentioned, and it also wants wording about transparency and accountability, implicitly aimed at China included in there. So basically what we're seeing is two world powers who are supposed to be leading right now. And I think everyone's craving uh, for global leadership right now, and, and they're behaving like children.
1: Yes, I think this is gonna be a real problem for the near term. You know, we were looking at the rise of China, wondering how was it gonna play out? And now it's all gonna be covered or affected by this crisis because it is going to amp up xenophobia and racism towards towards China amongst the populations of the affected peoples of the world. They're going to get the blame for this. I mean, remember, for a long time, Trump kept on wanting to talk about the Wuhan virus and other folks have been trying to do the same thing as opposed to calling it Corona or, or COVID to try to target China. And so that makes it all much harder to cooperate. And the thing is, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, we we'll talk about the WHO, Cooperation is essential in all this. No country can handle this on its own. And one of the reasons why this thing has gotten worse than it could have been, why it's been gone farther and caused more economic damage and killed more people, has been the failure to cooperate. Leadership is still, between the United States and China, still tied up in blame casting, suggests that this xenophobia is going to be a real impediment to cooperation. In Canada, you know, the good news is that there has been some work between the Canadians and the Chinese on trying to deal with some of the vaccines and, and other issues uh, that have come up out of this. And, and while I'm pretty hostile to China most days because they're still holding Canadian hostages, I do think that we need to take seriously the potential for cooperation on these direct, immediate, important issues while we still deal with the larger symbolic problems and the, the challenges facing us in with China continuing to be a hostile power to us on multiple dimensions.
0: And you mentioned Canada here, and it reminds me of the piece you shared with me in Policy Options that was written by marie de Rosier and Phil Agassi, the politics of the pandemic. And even though the, this particular piece talks a lot about how countries are managing their international reputation amidst this crisis, what struck me most about the piece is that it raises doubts about Canada's reliance on multilateral institutions like the WHO. I'm not sure we're fully ready to answer this question, but did Canada lean too hard on the WHO in responding to the pandemic? Should it have charted a more independent course like, say, New Zealand? And without explicitly saying so, the article cautions countries like Canada when it comes to their unshakable faith and in, in multilateralism. So I, I also welcome the news of, of Canada cooperating with the Chinese on, on being at the forefront, finding a vaccine. But mm-hmm. I think that there are longer-term ramifications for, for Canada. And I think that the piece does a good job at... Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of of
2: that thinking.
1: Well, and one of the authors, Phil Gasay, is one of the co-directors of the CDSN. He also published a piece with Surgeon Vucic, who is also a co-director of the CDSN, raising questions about Canadian relying on not just international organizations, but on the United States. And so it's in, in some ways a call for more independence. But I have to push back and say, how? How does Canada become more independent? It's so reliant on global supply chains. It's so reliant on allies. It's so reliant on international organizations. And... We can increase capacity in some ways to deal some things on our own, so the government can spend lots more money, if it wants to, to have domestic suppliers of PPE, protection personal equipment, because they can do that, but then that becomes a tax expenditure because it's cheaper to produce in China with cheaper labor. So it costs more to be made in Canada. So any kind of thing we substitute for supply chains is going to cost more, which means either we as individuals pay for it uh, when we buy the stuff or the government pays for it, which means we pay for it out of our taxes. And there's only so much of that we can do. Uh, we don't have some of the basic building blocks for some of the things that we need. The more we, and we can't, provide for our own security ultimately without partners. Uh, so we can be more skeptical about what the WHO says or what our partners say. We can't build a CIA in addition to our own intelligence agencies to do health in- intelligence. We just don't have the capacity to do that. We're to- the country doesn't have the population size to duplicate what our allies bring to the table. And so there are trade-offs to be had. And I think that we might have to be more critical of what we read from our allies and from our international organizations, but we just can't build things from scratch and be a completely independent country, We just can't go our own way. It's just not possible.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I agree. The answer is somewhere in between. And as far as the WHO goes, the, the record is mixed. It performed very well in certain instances certainly better with SARS in 2003 than H1N1 or Ebola so i think we're probably going to see really interesting research come out to understand the conditions under which who performance is hampered versus enhanced and i think that when you look at how the current pandemic has been politicized you see what the recipe for for disaster is it's that politicization but it's very difficult for the way that the international organization is set up. On the one hand, you have like the more technical health expertise, which is embedded into the organization's mandate. And at the same time, it is a large organization with 194 member states. And when you have conversations about global uh, health, these will sometimes end up being controversial, politicized Mm -hmm. debates. So it's very difficult to separate, you know, that political aspect of the WHO with its more technical mandate of fostering research and harnessing health expertise to solve global public health problems.
1: Well, it's a good thing then that we're talking to Dr. Kelly Lee in a few minutes. Uh, I recorded a, uh, an interview with her last week about this these issues and she's been studying the globalization of of health and studying the WHO itself for for years. I think one of the challenges that comes up in all of this is that 80% of the funding of the WHO is, is voluntary. It's, uh, it's not assessed. And so that means that the money that is given often comes with strings. It comes with strings attached to priorities that the donor has as opposed to the priorities of the organization. And the organization, like any good fundraiser, has to be sensitive to not offending those who give it money. And so I think one of the reforms that should come out of this is changing how the budget works for the WHO, that if it has more of its own money to allocate based on good science and on the technocrats making the decisions as opposed to the politicians, then it can have a a better basis from which to operate. Uh, I also think one of the things that we saw in a Financial Times article recently is that one of the problems with the WHO is it's far less transparent than it could be. And I think that if it becomes much more transparent, then it would reduce a lot of the friction. But again, oftentimes you try to do things behind closed doors not to offend potential donors. So I, th- I think changing the funding situation matters. I think changing the transparency matters. Uh, when we talk to Kelly Lee, and she'll talk a little bit more about a different dimension, which is that WHO doesn't really have any teeth. It can't really enforce anything. And while that's true for most international organizations, it's not true for all of them. So perhaps there are lessons to learn from the w- World Trade Organization or from the International Monetary Fund or from some other vital international organizations that do have a little bit of teeth. But the problem, of course, we face right now is that in order to innovate with international institutions, you need global leadership from those who pay the most money if there is assessments, which again, would go back to China and the United States. So I, I don't know how we're going to get around that under the current uh, government. And it might be something that we have to wait until... January 2021 to make any real progress on this.
0: Yeah, I think when it comes to independence, when it comes to funding arrangements, I think they're all those are all pieces that have to come together. But the broader question of putting science before politics has really proven difficult across issue areas. I, I mm-hmm. just, climate change comes to mind, <laughs> but but that one is is um, much harder not to crack.
1: The challenge in in health matters is you have the pride of individual countries that they don't want to look bad. So that was what was motivating China to a large degree in the domestic politics of that. And you have pharmaceutical companies that have their own interests because they don't want to have medicines be too easily available because that cuts into their bottom line. Those are hard to grapple with, but they're much easier to grapple with than okay, sidelining, let's say, the oil industry. I mean, that, that's a huge problem for Canada right now. So I think the, the WHO problems are a little more manageable or a lot more manageable than climate change. But, uh, these, these dynamics are similar indeed.
0: The misinformation around it that's frustrating, like the demonizing of the science <laughs> behind climate change and, and to a certain extent, the disinformation efforts behind this health crisis mm-hmm. have been similar when you think about you know, how this virus originated and all of the conspiracy theories around it. So it's basically casting doubt on what should be a strictly scientific discussion. And so this is where I feel like we're being led astray.
1: Absolutely. And again, this is one of the problems with China trying to be a rising hegemon is that if they want to be a hegemon, they have to have credible information. And if they, they spend this crisis putting out false information about the stuff, which they've been doing, then that's going to weaken their ability to either replace or work alongside the United States in, in global, global leadership roles. So the question will be, what does China learn from this uh, in the near term? Because if they really want to have more influence in the world, then they've got to behave better. It's not a problem for the Trump administration because they don't really want to lead the world anymore. But uh, the next American administration, whether that's in, in a year or in four plus years, they're going to have to grapple with how do they try to carve out more independence for these medical organizations so that way they, they develop some credibility. Again, it goes back to basic international relations is it's really hard to cooperate. And maybe you don't need to have a single one player to facilitate international cooperation, but you definitely need to have the major players not be opposed to international cooperation. And so the fact that the United States has been an impediment and China has been an impediment makes it really, really hard to cooperate. And as we've seen from previous uh, epidemics, cooperation is essential in all of this. Uh, This is why SARS was able to be beaten back. This is why H1N1 was not as problematic as it could be. It's why polio has been largely eradicated. We have all kinds of diseases that we fought successfully together. We can't fight alone.
0: And uh, we also had set out to discuss a little bit the COVID-19 recommendations from the CDSN conference So bringing things back to to Canada and the work that you're leading, I know you've been really busy, you have lots of speaking engagements (laughs) (laughs) lined up uh, tomorrow, but have you had any feedback or further engagement after making the report with the recommendations accessible online?
1: Um, I'd say right now we've gotten a lot of good buzz about it, that people are very happy that we've done it. I got uh, feedback from uh, the folks at, Department of National Defense, the Mines uh, group, the Mobilizing, International, in, Mobilizing Insights in Defense and Security is the, is the acronym. They're very happy to have received it. They're thinking about it. I've encouraged them to come back to us with feedback so that way we can continue the research. I've had some people comment online, but we'll see. I, I, I don't think anybody's picked up our recommendations and said, we will make it so, yet. I do think that if you follow the Chief of Defense Staff's uh, Twitter account and the Deputy Minister's Defense uh, Twitter account, you're seeing that they are doing a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about of better communications. I think that, you know, they asked us, well, how should we cut the budget? (laughs) We were like, "Mm, that's not gonna happen anytime too soon. But we'll see if they start planning and to do defense for you, because that was one of the big recommendations. And I know there will probably be some resistance to that. But we do are living in different times than there were in 2016, 2017. So we'll see. I think the conversation is continuing.
0: I think writing the report was also useful for us participants because when you're at a Zoom event with 60 people, it's bound to get a little bit chaotic. And now to see the glossy policy report you know, <laughs> is, is making a lot of sense. And it's also good to let the dust settle a bit on the, the initial conversation that happened. So I think that the recommendations are good for policymakers, but they're also good for scholars because those are research questions that that we can perhaps pursue. And I know you asked for a bit of funding from Carleton to maybe set up a group of grad students to investigate some of these questions a Mm -hmm. bit more. But but there are some themes there that I think are worth looking into further. I obviously picked up on the alliance piece. I think it makes sense to examine the nature and rationale of allied responses to COVID. We're all Mm -hmm. wondering what the new normal will look like when it comes to operations. And so looking at how allies and partners have adjusted can, I think, yield some interesting insights. One other thing that I was struck by is the return of uh, the human security concept, mm-hmm. and I think that return was well on its way before the pandemic. I certainly saw this in NATO conversations, but in Canada, with the launch of the Delaire Centre for Excellence for Peace and Security,
1: a new partner for the CDSN,
0: right? <laughs> a lot of <laughs> flags on this episode, but uh, human security <sighs> concepts are likely to have even greater appeal now as the pandemic will probably increase demand for humanitarian assistance. Mm-hmm. So that one uh, really struck me as as being uh, worthy of further investigation. At the same time, though, and, and your report picks up on this as well, or our report picks up on this, <laughs> also, uh, borders are likely to harden and authoritarian leaders will want to consolidate their emergency measures power grab. So I think hard power is going to remain relevant, but uh, I keep seeing human security pop up again and again. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it feels like the
1: 90s. But I do think that, you know, people are asking the right questions, which is, for instance, the United States spends $700 billion a year, you know, right now, the United States has faced higher casualties in this crisis thus far than it did in the entirety of Vietnam. Uh, And it will soon outrace, you know, pretty much every major American conflict since World War II. So it raises the question of, of spending $700 billion on the military, and it's not really all that useful when we face the gravest threat to our people. And so that might suggest a change in priorities. Whether it's likely or not, we'll see, but I definitely think there'll be a lot more people talking about this stuff in the, in the months and years to come.
0: No, I was just gonna mention just one final thing, and that's uh, in the civil section of the report. I just have it next to me. And you mentioned online training resources. This is a big short-term focus for the Canadian Armed Forces. I'm just thinking of the many service members who are at home and have more free time than usual to do individual training. I think this is an area that the CDSN could invest in. You had a summer school plan and this is not happening this year. So developing online learning opportunities in the meantime, I think would find a ready and willing audience. But I won't go into this any further because you'll think I'm volunteering to take this on or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that uh, I'll keep showing up every couple of weeks for this co- podcast though this is about as much as I I can do uh in the current environment. I think before we met up to chat I I sent you a picture of what my studio looks like in in the basement. I was super proud this week cuz I got this uh new mic setup and i've invested in a brand new pop filter i was feeling pretty good about the whole thing and then my little studio got completely overrun by legos so (laughs) (laughs) we lost control of this zone
1: Yes, uh, infiltration by uh, the insurgents, uh, the young insurgents in your household, hard to prevent. Yeah, I will say the one plug I will have for the CESN is that we're gonna work on a, a student to support graduate students that one of the challenges that uh, students working in the research are have now is they're probably not getting as much feedback since they're not having any conferences. So we're gonna try to develop an online seminar to try to bring together the PhD students in Canada who do defense and degree stuff. So that way they can get feedback and then they can develop some sense of community in this time where they're feeling pretty isolated and, and probably not getting as much uh, input as they, as they need to make progress on their work. But having online classes or online uh, content for the CAF and the d that's something to think about. Thanks for increasing my workload, staff. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome.
0: Well, we'll be chatting again in two weeks. I really look forward to this interview coming up with Dr. Lee. We'll keep on surviving.
1: Just one day at a time, one podcast at a time.
0: That's right. And I look forward to celebrating our one-year anniversary soon.
1: Great. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Steph. Be well, be healthy. Wash those kids' hands. (laughs) Will do. Uh, welcome, Kelly Lee, to Battle Rhythm. We're glad to have you as you've been somebody who's been studying the relationship between globalization and infectious diseases for much of your career. So I guess this has affected you more directly because it's actually your research is on this st- sort of stuff, right?
2: That is exactly right. Yes. It's what I've been waiting for in many ways. A terrible thing to happen, but it has made all my research relevant for sure. I've studied uh, the impacts of globalization on all sorts of things, but infectious diseases is one of the them and how we respond collectively across countries to you know, effectively deal with these shared risks. So yes, very much um, in my wheel well.
1: I guess the question then is, are you surprised about any part of this or is this sort of played out like you might've expected?
2: I think both. I think you know, we've been predicting an event like this for a long time and there's been a lot of warnings um, that we need to be better prepared. At the same time, I think the speed in which this has happened and how much it's impacted on many countries and the whole societies really has taken, I think, uh, everyone by surprise.
1: One of the things that we're looking to now that were there months into this, is the role of the World Health Organization. Obviously, there's a lot of criticism of that. Uh, I guess I'm curious as to your expert uh, an opinion on how the WHO has performed. It has experience, obviously, with previous epidemics. You know, what has what has gone right and what has gone wrong with the WHO in this particular pandemic?
2: There's been a lot of things that have been talked about WHO, so it's important that we recognize, I think, first and foremost, that It's mandated to do certain things when an event like this happens. So just to go back a little bit in history, WHO is a specialized agency for health that was created in 1948. And it was really created to coordinate international cooperation on a whole range of health issues, including outbreaks such as this. So when we see this happening, what, 70 years later... Uh, Was WHO, you know, ready to uh, address a big global pandemic like this? I would say not. And there's all sorts of things we could talk about why that is the case, but it's been caught out. I think everybody's been caught out to be frank. I don't think any country from national to local level government from high, middle and income, low income countries have been caught out. We've all been surprised by this. So I think there's a lot of questions to be asked that things have gone right. I think, is that we have had a global surveillance system that picked up this outbreak. We were warned of this in January. Uh, We got the information and we got the best advice that was available on this uh, outbreak. It's a novel coronavirus, so there's a lot of things we don't know about it. But the best advice came forward and countries acted accordingly. What we're now seeing is a lot of criticism, of course, whether that action was fast enough, whether it was complete enough. And, of course, whether national governments responded um, as quickly as they should have as well. So lots of things to think about when this is finally over.
1: One of the questions that arises, is there something about this virus that makes it more surprising to us than uh, previous diseases? It has a name novel in it. We've had experienced coronaviruses before. So is this particularly problematic or is it more that it's a time frame where the WHO may be getting less support from, let's say, the United States and some other actors that have made it harder for it to react?
2: I think the severity of this pandemic has been due to a large number of factors. So you've named some of them. I think the novelty of the pathogen is certainly a major challenge. So, you know, aspects of it, it really unpredictable. It isn't isn't behaving the way, say, previous coronaviruses have behaved. So the fact that there's asymptomatic transmission, potentially, that people are not demonstrating uh, high levels of antibodies, uh, all sorts of things that are kind of surprising, a little bit unusual. And so, you know, that, that throws mm-hmm. things a little bit off. We're also at a time when I think international relations is really fraught. And we have been experiencing for years of pulling away from multilateralism and towards nationalism. And I think we all recognize that that in a world where we're more interconnected is actually a bad thing, that we're kind of, you know, finding ourselves in a a situation where we need strong government and we need strong international organizations. And it comes at a time when actually both of those things have been hollowed out. So I think that Mm -hmm. kind of coming together is is, it's very bad timing, I would say, for this pandemic to happen now.
1: And I guess the question that a lot of people have is there's been questions about whether the WHO was either collusion is too strong of a word, but was too submissive to the Chinese or was just not as responsive to what was going on in China as people might have hoped for? Is that a fair criticism or is this part more of just the blame China, blame WHO, blame everybody else besides ourselves?
2: I, I tend to go to the latter, I have to say. So, mm-hmm. you know, WHO, like all UN organizations, have to navigate both the shared interests that all of us, all countries share, and, and also the powerful countries we know are out there who put their national interests ahead of the international community at times. So, you know, WHO is not a US Academy of Sciences. It's not a Royal Society of Canada. It's, it's a UN specialized agency. So, so politics is in its DNA. We, we can't get away from that. I think the issue is not that politics needs to be somehow, you know, excised from the organisation, but we have to make sure that good politics prevails and bad politics is ferreted out. And I think we're seeing... You know, over the years we've seen both, and you know we'll, we'll somehow decide whether you know there was good or bad politics in WHO with this outbreak. I, I, my take is that I don't see WHO as some, simply just kowtowing to Beijing. I, I read the situation as Dr. Tedros, the Director General, was trying to make sure that the Chinese government was cooperating and was you know, coming forthcoming as much as possible. We all recognize uh, in, in the past that. The, that has not been the case. So trying to give the China to, to come forward with as deep data and as uh, timely data as possible. So the question is, did it push hard enough? Did WHO push the Chinese government hard enough? And, and I guess that comes down to how much power does WHO have in its mm-hmm. authority? And, and it's not a it's not a government that can just you know, demand that any government uh, behave a certain way. It has to rely on member states to voluntarily cooperate. Obviously, we have a treaty, the International Health Regulations, yeah. and that requires member states to give timely information and comprehensive information. But WHO doesn't have the authority to enforce that treaty. And that, I think that is where the problem lies. It, it can't just walk yeah. into countries and you know, collect that data itself or demand it be handed over. So it's in a difficult situation, and it has to rely on diplomacy. And that is, you know, whether they got the diplomacy right, I think probably not in everyone's eyes, they did. But in terms of, you know, at the time, what we knew, I, I personally saw it that way, that it was a diplomatic effort, not a some, some sort of cover up.
1: Yeah, I think that people overestimate the power of internationalizations, every country remains sovereign, every country can give as much or as little help or information to an effort as it so chooses. I study NATO and people assume that NATO is a unified body, but you look at what it does in, in countries. It will give varying level support depending on their degree of interest, depending on how much their domestic politics is at stake and, and so forth. So it, I think people have overplayed this, but because we don't know about the WHO as much as we know about the UN or the International Monetary Fund or NATO, mm-hmm. people tend not to have a really clear grasp of what it is and what it isn't. And the challenge is that It's like all medicine and all preventive efforts. When things go well, you don't hear anything about it. When things go poorly, it gets all the blame. I guess one of the things I'm curious about is in previous crises, has a WHO been able to adjust and adapt in ways that seem more agile or flexible than they've done in this circumstance. I'm thinking of of either H1N1 or uh, Ebola or some other previous crisis that we can compare to this so that way we can see what maybe the changes are in the virus, maybe the changes are in that the structure of international relations is different in 2020 than it was in 2010, given the rise of China and the decline of the United States, or at least the decline of the American interest in multilateralism. So did it play a better job in previous crises that we can sort of draw lessons from?
2: I'm sure we can. And it's important to, to look back for sure and compare uh, WHO's, you know, role and, and the role of member states uh, in each of those public health emergencies. And there have been, you know, several we can learn from. And as we go forward with this one, there'll certainly be a, a sort of reflection. And, a, and, and I'm sure it sounds like even before we get out of this, there may be some um, evaluations. But what I come back to, you know, we, of course, you, we learn each time. Um, what we come back to is just trying to understand what we created WHO to do. And then is that and then think, is that enough? You know, do we want to then reform WHO to create something that we need now? Because, again, it, it was created in 1948. And here we are in the early 21st century. The world is in a completely different place. And um, maybe it's not designed to deal with such an interconnected world so there's all sorts of things we can talk about you know with reform i mean i I go back to what who was expected to do as it currently is structured and it it really did do what what it was expected to do so it collected data uh, it was it's called epidemic intelligence and this data is collected from mm-hmm. member states who give official reports to WHO and, and in addition to WHO since since about 2007 it can call on unofficial reports things like you know mm-hmm. the media and so there's this kind of scraping of the internet by various systems to get this unofficial data and they, they pull all this together and they alert member states if there happens to be an event that's worth alerting them to. And that did happen. So those two functions were mm-hmm. were working. Where I think, I guess, the problem lies is that we, we look at those two functions and think, okay, could they have been done better? Could they have done faster mm-hmm. and fuller? And then that's not mm-hmm. WHO. That's that's okay. What if we tasked WHO to do? Do we want it to you know compel member states to hand over information, or maybe member states don't have the capacity to uh, hand over information because of lack of um, you know lab systems or healthcare systems are are not well structured and so on. So what do we do then? So there's a there's kind of ability to report, but they don't, or there's an inability to report. So we got to deal with those things. We need better better data. So yeah, there's there's definitely things we could learn. Um, H1N1, you know, WHO was criticized because it moved too fast, perhaps, you know, declared a public health emergency and then it wasn't as serious. Of course it was serious, but it wasn't as serious as this pandemic, you know? And so then it's so like, you, you know, you stop a pandemic from getting more serious and then it's people say, oh, well, you know, you overreacted, so you can't win really. Um, and then you move fast and then it becomes, you know, serious and say, oh, you did not fast enough. So it's really hard to compare different outbreaks, Mm -hmm. different pathogens, they behave in different ways. And there's, you know, it's a different context every time Mm -hmm. one of these events happens. So that it makes, makes it play out very differently.
1: So I guess the you've hinted at in some of your comments that there, there are things that we, that this is an organization that was built in the 1940s. What would you like to see change about the design of the WHO to make it better able to handle globalized medical problems?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I understand that uh, the, the U.S. government has handed over a list of reforms. I haven't seen those, by the way, and, and nobody has, yeah. I think. But it'd be quite, quite interesting to see what they propose after that exchange of words. Um, for, for me, I mean, I mean, WHO reform has been a constant companion in my career. I think um, I, I started in, in as academic in 1990s, which is when WHO reform became onto the agenda. So that was quite interesting timing. So yeah, it's been on the table a long time. It's not a new subject. And I I think what the pandemic exposes about WHO is that I guess member states have failed, really, to give the organization that authority and the resources it needs to be the the coordinating body that we need for global health security in the 21st century. So I I, I always go back to three things. I always identify with my students. The first Mm -hmm. is an international legal framework. And that, of course, underpins uh, international cooperation. And to some extent, we have that. We have the IHR. And it clearly didn't work this time. So something needs to be done to look at how the international health regulations have have, have been treated during this outbreak and what we can do to, to reform it again. It was reformed in 2005. It probably needs to be looked at again. And so that, that's one thing that needs to, that will underpin what member states do. Uh, the second thing is the limited powers of WHO. So I mentioned this already. And so what WHO is, it's a member state organization. So it doesn't have that supra national authority that we have in very small cases in the world. What's missing from the IHR, for example, is that enforcement mechanism. So it doesn't have any teeth. So so we, we can think about maybe comparing it to other international organizations. And the comparison I often draw is the World Trade Organization. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have this Mm. fucking trade uh, regime. It's valued by all countries. Countries value trade. So if a country violates a trade treaty under WTO auspices, then we have we have uh, consequences. We have either these countermeasures that are uh, imposed, you know, like you put too much taxes on our cheeses, so we're going to do the same for you, or something like that. I mean, that's kind of there's there's mechanisms to to kind of um, in, enforce the WTO decisions. But we look at WHO and we don't have any of those countermeasures, and and so we might agree after the pandemic that the IHR needs to have something like that. And in my view, probably nation of carrots and sticks you know maybe it's something like in financial uh, um, assistance if you comply and or, or some sort of uh, incentive but also some also punitive uh, measures so I think that will be something that needs to be looked at um you know the million dollar question mm-hmm. I suppose is you know what countries are willing to give up in terms of giving WHO authority in exchange sure. for greater security so there's that's trade-off. And then the third thing i would say is funding uh mm-hmm. who is woefully underfunded and uh it gets about 2.8 us billion dollars per year and that sounds like a lot but if you think about who's mandate and you look at its, its constitution it it covers everything that's under the health umbrella so from aids to zika as i often say and it's 194 member states so that budget's quite stretched thinly in terms of all these issues, all these programs. And then you compare it with, you know, all the money we've spent now with this COVID outbreak. And it's pretty small amount. You know, we could have really mm-hmm. saved a lot of money if we had uh, funded WHO properly. So that, those are the three areas I would start with. And certainly, you know, they're big ones. <laughs> it would take us some time to think
1: yeah i guess well one thing to talk about is the funding issue since now the united states has threatened to cut off the funding and the united states traditionally in all, most international organizations has been the primary funder ever since the end of the cold war i guess the question for you is is there somebody else likely to jump in to replace the united states or is this just something we have to wait until the next american election for it to flip i mean is is there somebody else who can cover this i know that what was it last week there was on the american tv north american tv a tv program where they're raising money for the who i'm not sure we can uh, can raise money oh, yeah. through that kind of thing but i guess what, what are the implications of the u.s halting funding for the who
2: yeah concerts are not going to you know raise the level of money that we need and that specifically goes for the emergency fund for covid so mm-hmm. it's not going to the keeping the lights on in geneva and so on um so who is funded by a couple of pots of money one is the cess contributions which un organizations get from their member states which are be, you know based on as you probably know population size and GDP Um, and that's the kind of you know required if you want to be a member and then the other is through voluntary contributions and so over time the voluntary contributions have grown in proportion to the total budget it's something like 75 or 80 percent now of WHO's budget and and that money is earmarked for by by those donors for all sorts of things whatever they they want WHO to do and so WHO's left with about 20 percent of its budget Mm -hmm. to do what it thinks is a priority. So there's an issue there with the withdrawal of American funding. Yes, other countries could step in for sure with the voluntary funds, the Gates Foundation steps can step in again, yet again, and, uh, you know, others will probably do so. I think there's a more fundamental problem, though, is with how WHO is funded. So it doesn't actually have control over 80% of its budget. It's Mm -hmm. the donors that do. And that's not really, I don't think that's viable going forward. If you want an organization that's, you know, decisive and, effective and yet what it's doing is running around trying to fulfill all these kind of orders by the donors that is a problem i think there needs to be a fundamental thinking rethinking about the formula the way that we fund something that is so fundamental to all of us you know is is, we got it right i don't think we do i think we need to think about having some core funding which who and uh, obviously guided by you know governed by the member states i should say are controlling as a whole and not having People come in and say, "Oh yes, I'd like to do X, Y, and Z," uh, and it's only for these countries and it's only for this period period of time. the The transaction costs are incredible for the organization, and it just it really is a you know a complex long what I call you know like this menu of things that that it has to do, and and its core functions really like global outbreak response. Needs to be, um, you know, injected with far more funding than it has been.
1: And I guess the, the the natural question to ask in this is, if the United States pulls back a little bit and the Chinese start being a major funder of this, is that going to affect how the WHO operates? And given that the Chinese have been less than transparent at times, you know, without getting into xenophobia teams at the chinese we can be honest and and talk about more chinese influence might mean a a less effective organization given their lack of transparency on their own when when things hit them hit them hard
2: I, i think this comes down to um you know this point i make about voluntary contributions so so no country should be able to um call the tune in in, a, in an international organization, a truly international organization. You put your money in the pot and you should step back and let the organization consult with the, its member states and decide what the priorities are. That hasn't happened for, you know, decades. And so what's ironic is that the U.S. is accusing the organization of being Chinese dominant. But, you know, for many decades, it's been quite American dom- dominated because of the way that it's been funded. So I don't know if that's either way. I don't think it's a good thing, whether it's Chinese influence or American influence. It it needs to be a more democratic process. And so, again, going back to that funding formula, you have to change that. I I do think the Chinese government can step up more and provide more funding multilaterally. It's given a lot of its aid to countries for health development through bilateral means. And that means it has some geopolitical interests, obviously, in doing so. But for me, I, I, you know, and I've said this before and elsewhere, I think there's a time for China to step up and be more of a global citizen. And I, I don't think that should be something we should all be scared of. In fact, it would be a, a good thing if it starts to, you know, contribute in the way that I think it could, as it as it gets to be a, a more wealthy country, that it needs to demonstrate th- that it is part of the global community and not trying to still
1: um by favor. Yeah, as, as a scholar of international relations, um, I, I'm sure as, as you are, it's it's it got to be pretty skeptical that the Chinese are going to step up in a way that will lead to them dumping lots of money without trying to influence things, just like the United <laughs> States, when it did dump a bunch of money, try to influence how things operated. I guess I'm curious as to where you see Canada playing any role in this. I mean, Canada can't spend $2 billion to fund the you know the WHO, although given how much it's spending on, on dealing with this pandemic, the WHO's budget is now looking like a drop in the bucket. So what do you think Canada should be doing about this or what can Canada do about this?
2: Yes, I, I've been actually, you know, really pleased to be in Canada at this time. Our, our government has been... Um, I know, not criticize being too close to WHO and etc. And there's been comments like that. It's about this commitment to collective action that I really think that Canada has a place to have a voice. And uh, mm-hmm. traditionally, we are a, you know, a supporter of the UN system and multilateralism. And I think these kind of middle power stances are going to be very important when we come out of this pandemic. So I'm fearful that the some of the larger, more powerful countries will continue to go down that national road and pull back from multilateralism. And that actually, for me, I I believe that's a fundamental mistake that what, if anything, this has taught us is that no country can get through this without relying on other countries. You know, cooperation, whether it's data sharing or sending equipment across, or just, you know, basically coordinating the measures that each country is taking None of this can be done in isolation. So we're going, we have to cooperate. This is kind of laying it really clearly on the line. So pulling out of um, WHO or pulling out of whatever multilateral organization emerges from the ashes is going to be a mistake. And I think Canada could really be a leader in this respect. I, I really, what I, you know, I'm not trying to be flying the, you know, waving the flag here. What what I think is notable i think about the canadian response has been the alignment between the public health officials and the our political leaders i think that is a a, a model of of the kind of unity you need in a public health emergency we we don't want to see this bickering and blaming the kind of confrontations we're seeing south of the border is really undermining public trust you know and the way we're going to get through this is through solidarity and and so you're looking to your political leaders to kind of build that sense of solidarity and public trust domestically. I I would like to see that Canadian experience exported abroad. And when, you know, we go to look at WHO and how we could support it to to serve us better, you know, it's kind of a two-way street, then I think that message of, the solidarity the building up of institutions that have uh, the capacity to underpin collective action is the messaging I would I would advise Canada to take and I think we're we're kind of modeling that anyway so hopefully that will will come through.
1: And I guess the last question I have is, Is how is this affecting your research agenda? Have uh, I assume that obviously you've been studying infectious diseases and globalization for years now. Is this just another case or is it leading you to think differently about your research? What are you doing from, I assume, home this summer? Are you gonna be studying this uh, crisis as it, or are you just gonna wait till it's over with before you dig into it? How is it shaping your research agenda?
2: It's turned it completely upside down so um, yeah. for a number of years <laughs> I guess a number of people could say that along with the usual stuff I had um, I I had uh, actually wanted to move back into the space so I moved into non-communicable diseases I was working on tobacco control for a number of years and put the infectious diseases aside so this is really um, you know an, an opportunity to get back into this this area but also I mean global health governance is something that is my focus so this is just this epitomizes what uh, this subject is all about, is what, what do you do when you have a shared risk, such as a, a pandemic? How do you structure institutions? How do you distribute authority and resources and so on? So I've been lucky enough to be funded by CIHR and the um, New Frontiers in, Health, in, in Research uh, Fund, which uh, has provided us with funding for two studies. One is to look at the IHR and compliance with the IHR why there hasn't been compliance with with the uh, treaty and what we can do about that, because this is, you know, without a, Without compliance, we have no coordination, and without coordination, we're not going to get out of this mess. So there's that urgency there. So we're trying to figure that puzzle out. The second is looking at how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting on gender, and we're very much focused on, you know, just trying to understand the outbreak itself, but also how measures that are being taken are impacting on gender in in differential ways. So we're collecting data on that, and it's surprising how little data there is out there. So. There's two big projects. Um, the second one is is being led by my colleague, Julia Smith. And together, we're going to be very busy this summer. Um, there's a lot to do for sure. And hopefully, we'll contribute to figuring out how we get out and beyond this pandemic and ready for the next one, because there's going to be a next one for sure.
1: There's two elements of the globalization of this that I wanted to address before I let you go. One is the globalization of the supply chains of the ppe and the vaccines the medicine is this something you studied is this something that that you're surprised by that combination of nationalism and desperation has now led to countries having to think about sort of health care, health products, mercantilism?
2: It's not something I've studied, but I'm disappointed to see the, you know, the mad scramble that we've we've seen for PPE and and some of the, I guess, self-interest that has been uh, really on display with with acquiring some of these supplies. But it, it does illustrate how these sorts of products are produced in the world, you know, with an interconnected global economy and that no one country has this kind of, you know, dominant position. If any, I guess if any country does, it's actually China with all its factories. But it does show we, we have to cooperate in kind of producing these products, sharing them across. And it makes more sense, you know, if, if there's an outbreak, we send the materials and the equipment to where the outbreak is so that we contain it. That was That's the whole fundamental principle around public health is you ring fence and you stop a, an outbreak at source. It's not about hoarding. And, you know, we've seen a lot of hoarding behavior during this outbreak and on many levels. And actually, you know, it's a maybe a human instinct to do so, but it's actually very counterproductive. And, and so we need to kind of resist hoarding behavior because that will, you know, undermine... Kind of the long term. And I think countries need to stop with this kind of behavior as well. So PPE is, is kind of, it'd be great case study if somebody wanted to write that up and how that has all unfolded.
1: The last question I'd, I'd ask you is, is, are there things that people at, you know, that don't ask you there? Is there something that you want to tell people or have them think about that people aren't asking you. Is there something that people are, were avoiding or not just thinking about because we don't mm-hmm. we uh, most people don't study global health. Uh, and so we don't really know what the right questions are to ask. I certainly don't know what the right questions are to ask. So what are the right questions to ask or what are some of the things we should know.
2: Oh, well th- thanks for that opportunity. Um, I guess. Yeah, I study I study and I teach in a, a faculty of health sciences. So we're very health-focused. I would say in terms of globalization, so we've seen economic globalization unfold over the past, what, two, three decades, driven by uh, a market logic. Uh, And that market logic has really hollowed out the state, hollowed out WHO and public institutions. And I think what we've learned is that we can't do that. We, if we want globalization to succeed economically, we also have to go back and think, well, what underpins that process or that sector? And we need we need strong foundation, which is government. And I think a lot of the private companies who have been avoiding minimizing their tax burdens need to look at themselves and say, well, why are we out of business now? Well, it's because you haven't paid those taxes which underpin government's which enable them to then allow companies like yourselves to function. So the, there's an interconnectedness there, which I think people don't necessarily put together. Social sectors are often seen as a drain on economies when, in fact, you know, they enable economies to function. And I think that's probably the main message, I hope. That we we come away with is that we need to invest in those basic functions in society that make us all not only healthy, but, you know, economically healthy, just just functioning as societies.
1: Well, I really thank you for your time. I'm sure you're going hit hard these days by the media, other podcasts, because uh, there's not as much knowledge about the stuff as there should be. We only care about it during the middle of a crisis, but I think that this crisis is going to cause us to to try to take more of your time down the road as as we'll come back to you to ask you more about this because uh, this stuff is so very important. So I really appreciate your time.
2: I really appreciate the opportunity, Steve, and I'm I'm glad to speak to you and hopefully, you know, get that message out about global health, which is, I think, relevant to everyone. I hope that sort of stirs some interest in a wider audience. Thanks so much for inviting me.
1: Sure, Kelly. If we don't learn this lesson now, I don't know when we'll learn it. I (laughs) really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much.
2: Well, stay safe, Steve. Stay well, as everybody says. And um, yeah, well, hopefully we we can connect maybe on the other side when this is all over.
1: On today's rest and relaxation R and R segment, I have a couple of recommendations. First, there is a documentary series, I believe it's at Netflix called Five Came Back, which explores the experience of five US filmmakers, John Ford, William Wyler, John Houston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens. These were the directors of most of the big movies in the United States, both before and after World War II. And they were hired or and some joined the US military to make films during the war. And so it shows what they did, what traumas were visited upon them, both psychological and physical. And so it's a really interesting set of shows about these famous directors. And it gives you a different look on World War II than you might be familiar with. So that's the movie I recommend this week. The TV show I recommend this week is completely different. It's called Upload. It's on Amazon. It's about a guy who dies in the future. And in the future, what happens is there's if you have somebody willing to pay for it or if you've paid for it, you can have your essence, your memories, your personality uploaded and placed in a virtual world. And so this guy's... Is now living essentially with other dead people in a place that looks a whole lot like Banff. <laughs> it looks like a you know a nice mountain spot, a beautiful Fairmont Chateau type place, where he's dealing with being dead but also being alive because he can communicate uh, via the technology with people who are still living. And it's also a bit of a murder mystery because he died in a mysterious accident. So it's silly, it's sweet, it's moving. It's easy to jam through. The episodes are only, you know, 25 minutes or so. So that's my tea recommendation for the week. Upload on Amazon. The book of the week is Detonators by Chad Millman. This is a book about sabotage during World War I. The biggest explosion before the famous one in Halifax was in New York, where there was an effort by the Germans to sabotage the war material going to the Allies, the French and the British. And it's a story that was really not very well known. So I'm trying to improve my knowledge of World War I history. This book is well written, it's fascinating, it covers a period of history that we don't really know very well. So those are my recommendations for this week Five Came Back, Upload, and The Detonators. And again, be healthy, be well, stay at home, let your hair grow long, and good luck with whatever you're baking. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at. Twitter address at cdsnrcds or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.